Morning, brothers and sisters. The story of the healing of the cripple in John 5 is, I have to admit, a strange story. But John's gospel is full of strange stories, isn't it? I mean, you know, in chapter 3, John interviews the most erudite man in Jerusalem, only to have this teacher sound like he's learning disabled. In chapter 4, He interviews this woman who has been through a series of failed relationships, has terrible theology, and she becomes the most successful evangelist in the gospel. In chapter 6, he invites his followers to chew his flesh and drink his blood, and they don't know what to make of it. In chapter 11, his best friend is dying, and Jesus deliberately waits until he dies, and then goes and raises him from the dead. It's no wonder nobody knows what to make of him in this gospel. But of all the weird stories in this gospel, I think this healing chapter is maybe the weirdest of all. And to think about it, what I want to do is just kind of meditate for a few minutes on the setting and just kind of take you back, you know, sort of like you know, meditating on, on scriptures. You know, it's kind of like going to a foreign country, you know. We have to kind of put ourselves in those people's place. Think What would it be like to be in their shoes? There'll be a short quiz afterwards. No, just kidding. (laughs) Just kidding. Uh, And then, you know, try and see from that, what is it John is trying to tell us? Why is he telling us this story? First of all, John gives us a setting as one of the festivals. He doesn't tell us which, but one of the festivals. Jerusalem, of course, was the most important, the biggest city in Judea, the holiest city in the world for Jews, literally, like Mecca for Muslims, like Rome for Catholics, a city of some eighty to 100,000 people. But at festival time, it's thought that it may have swelled to as many as 400 to half a million people, packed shoulder to shoulder, like Times Square on New Year's Eve with pilgrims. And one of the ways that Jerusalem had come over the centuries to deal with these overflow crowds was to build these cisterns, these pools, to have water for, pil- for pilgrims. And one of these pools was the Pool of Bethesda. So we start out by reading that Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of these festivals, and that in Jerusalem there was, near the Sheep Gate, a pool called Bethesda, surrounded by five colonnades. Now, Bethesda, uh, as you can see from the map there, was actually the largest of these pools in Jerusalem, just located on the north edge of the temple. We're told our sources that it was roughly 125 feet wide by 360 feet long, and quite a deep pool as well. It had two halves. I'll show you a reconstruction of it in a minute. Uh, There were many other pools as well. So the primary function of this was not for healing, even though pilgrims were gathered around there for healing. The primary function was actually water supply and overflow supply for pilgrims. Colonnades may be a funny word for some of you. Colonnade is a technical term. refers to a covered porch or a covered walk. Uh, If you... If you've ever been to the British city of Bath, named because, of course, the baths there, there's still a Roman colonnade standing that goes around all four sides of the bath in Bath. And you can see from the picture here, 
uh, what a colonnade would have looked like in Jesus' time. That is an actual Roman colonnade, so it's a covered porch. Why a colonnade? Well, there's no air conditioning in the ancient Near East, right? So a colonnade gives you shade, and when you have water and evaporation and shade, it's basically a kind of ancient form of air conditioning, right? Uh, So it worked pretty nice, especially for pilgrims. So you have this, uh, these nice areas where you, you have shade, people can gather. Uh, the water provides a cooler spot as well, as well as, of course, uh, for drinking and refreshment. And this particular pool apparently has also developed a reputation as a place of healing. According to artist reconstructions, and the pool of Bethesda has actually been found by archaeologists, we think that it probably looked something like this. A series of double pools had uh, five colonnades because it had one down the middle as well as on the four sides. So a very large place. So we have to imagine this scene not as, you know, Jesus coming up and finding some little guy in a corner, you know, talking privately to some guy. This is crowds of people, masses of people jamming Jerusalem for a festival. John says a great number of people were there. Imagine places today where people go for healing. Places, you know, uh, like Fatima, Portugal, like Lourdes in France, where, at, at, or Lourdes, excuse me, Lourdes, as my daughter says I should pronounce it, or something like that. Anyway, uh, I'm told that there's still four to six million people a year who, go, who visit Lourdes, or however, Jean-Louis, sorry, visit that place for healing. One visitor says that he saw like people lined up, wheelchairs lined up, eight abreast, 200 long, you know, waiting to get in for these prayer services. And so you have to imagine a scene like this for John 5. Here's this crowd, right? And we're introduced then to this unnamed character who we're told has been disabled 38 years. Why does John say 38 years? Well, I think his point is, this guy didn't just sprain his ankle, right? He didn't just get a fracture. This isn't some temporary disability. He is permanently disabled. He has been this way a long time. He may not have been necessarily sitting there at the pool for 38 years. He might have just come for the festival or some friends might have carried him there. But, you know, the, the point is, He's not getting any better. There's no hope without a miracle. That's John's point. And here comes the most famous healer in Israel. So famous that the gospel tells us when he goes into villages, people crowd around him and the streets are blocked. People push through crowds to touch him. And this guy doesn't even have to raise his hand and say, Please, Jesus, heal me. He doesn't say anything. In fact, Jesus picks him out of the crowd. Jesus makes his way through this crowd of pilgrims, laying around the pool, and finds his way to him. And it's not the crippled man who asks Jesus for the favor. It's Jesus who asks him. It seems almost opposite of most of the healing stories we're used to hearing. Do you want to get well? What do we expect him to say? What would you say? Seems like a simple yes or no question, doesn't it? 
what kind of reaction do we expect? You know, my home, uh, a lot of folks in my house like to watch a show called American Ninja Warrior. I know it's probably too plebeian for most of you, but... <laughs> some of these guys wait in this walk-on line for, for weeks. I don't know, like, where do they get their money? Like, do they get welfare checks and walk-on line? I don't know, you know, but I don't know what they... But I, these are incredible, you know, and... When some of these guys get a ticket, right, to participate, like, in other words, people normally would not have gotten to participate. And when you see their faces, right, you see their face. It's not like, oh, thanks. I'll take that. It's like, like that, right? Like, like joy, like dancing, like whoopee, like doing cartwheels and backflips. That's the kind of reaction you expect, right? Jesus says, do you want to be healed? Yes, of course I want to be healed. But that's not what the crippled man says. He immediately starts complaining. <laughs> he complains about the pool. He complains about the people around him. Complains that other people have an unfair advantage. Complains he has no one to help him. Well, someone said, I guess if we wanted to interpret that charitably, we could interpret that charitably as a request to be healed. But when we look at the rest of the story and what this fellow does, it's probably not. It's probably more like, what kind of an idiot are you? Why do you think I've been sitting here? And why don't you help me into the pool? The other funny thing about this story, compared to other stories of healing that we see in John's gospel and other gospels, there's no mention at all of this person's faith. Jesus just decides to heal him. Never says he had any showed any faith at all. In fact, just the opposite. He seems, he just grumbles. And Jesus looks at him and he doesn't say, I'll pray for you. Or I hope you get better soon. He commands. He commands him to stand. Now, in normal circumstances, you think it'd be kind of a sick thing to do, right? Look at a cripple and say, get up. I mean, can you imagine being in that crowd looking like, what? What is he saying? And yet he does. And of course, we're intended to think of somebody else who says stuff and it happens, right? Like in Genesis 1. God said, and it was. God said, and it was. God said, and it was. And, of course, we, if you know anything about medicine, the problem, one of the problems of being crippled is not just that, you know, uh, you haven't walked for a while or stuff doesn't work. Your muscles atrophy. There's no proper muscles there anymore. Your muscle memory even goes. So this isn't like just one miracle. This is like a dozen miracles altogether. Pick up your mat. Why does Jesus say pick up your mat? Because he's not just saying, get up and walk around to show people I healed you. Get up and walk around to test out your legs. Get up and walk around to show the priest you're healed. 
the mat, which is, you know, kind of like, uh, uh, what do you call it, futon, you know, only lighter than that, made of reeds. That was, he was sleeping there. He was staying there. Pick up your mat means you're not coming back here. And the funny thing, of course, is the, the crippled man had made this big deal about the pool. I need the pool. I'm not getting in the pool. My problem is the pool. My problem is the people around me. They're the problem. The pool's the problem. And when Jesus comes, he solves it without addressing any of those things. Do you notice? He doesn't talk about the pool. He doesn't talk about the people. Nothing. He doesn't address any of those guys' concerns. They just suddenly fade away. He just says, get up. Pick up your mat because you're not coming back. Now, at this point in the story, if John just stopped there, you know, we, we think, wow, you know, that's a, that's a great story. And right now, you know, as readers, if we hadn't read the story before, you know, we're ready to, like, celebrate, right? We're like, wow, it's great. That's an amazing miracle. If we were in the crowd, we'd be going, wow, clapping our hands. That's terrific. And all of a sudden, John throws a, a bombshell on us. He throws a twist in the story. He hasn't told us it's Sabbath. Now he drops it on us. Why is that significant? Because if you're Jewish, there's laws about Sabbath. You shall do no work on the Sabbath, says the Ten Commandments. What's work? Well, the rabbis spent their time defining work. 39 categories of work in the law. I won't bore you with all the details of the Mishnaic laws of work. But one of them, of course, would involve carrying loads. If he's carrying his mat, he's carrying a load on the Sabbath. And so, some religious leaders find him. It's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. Now, this fellow goes from having been disabled, not able to work, poor, destitute, sitting there by the pool, suddenly enabled, normal, Now I got a shot at life, and yet within moments he's in trouble with the law. And he blames Jesus. The man who made me well. It's funny, he doesn't even know his name, isn't it? Didn't even bother to catch his name. The guy who just gave him a new life after 38 years. The man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was. Literally in Greek, he did not know. He did not know. For Jesus had slipped away. One translation I read said, uh, Jesus ducked out. (laughs) Maybe he knew those religious leaders were around there. (laughs) Funny, huh? Why is this fellow so quick to throw Jesus under the bus? 
Well, then we hear, suddenly we find this cripple and Jesus at the temple. Why? Well, think about it. This is the first time in 38 years this man has been able to go to the temple. As a cripple, he was banned from the temple. He was unclean. He was excluded from worship. So not only was he crippled, disabled, unable to work, poor, begging on the street, he couldn't even participate fully in the religious life of Israel. So here, festival time, for the first time, he goes back to the temple. But of course, that's why Jesus is there too. And Jesus finds him there. But again, it's not just him and Jesus. This is crowds of people, crowds of people there. But somehow Jesus finds him. And again, John throws another twist in that we don't expect. Jesus tells him, look, you're well. Stop sinning or maybe sin no more. Or something worse may happen to you. We don't expect that. Does that mean all sin, all sickness is caused by sin? No, because clearly elsewhere in the very same gospel, Jesus comes across other people who are disabled and says, it has nothing to do with sin. Scripture never gives a clear one-to-one correspondence between illness and sin. It only says that evil can lead to those things. And so, of course, we have to be careful, don't we? Because we don't always know for sure. And that's what the book of Job is about, right? Job's friends assume because disaster falls on him, he must have sinned. But Jesus, being God's son, is the only one who's fully qualified to look at someone and know what the cause is of their ills. The irony, of course, is he's warned not to sin, and what does he do? He immediately goes and betrays Jesus. He uses his encounter with Jesus, his knowledge of Jesus, to ingratiate himself with the Jewish leaders. And that tells us that it was no accident earlier that he had pointed the finger at Jesus. He not only throws Jesus under the bus, he backs up and runs him over once again. Why does he do that? Well, I think, you know, if we just think on ordinary social reasons, why people do stuff, clearly this is a man who is threatened, who is worried about his social status, and who believes if he goes along with these leaders, his former life of being neglected and excluded and ostracized will be over. He'll be accepted. He can get a job. He can get along. He can live a good life. He can live. And yet the irony is that in seeking to live, he betrays the very one who gave him life. 
in the story. What a strange story. What we might ask is, why does John even tell this story? I mean, you know, unlike other Gospels that have a whole lot of stories but are fairly short, John only tells us a handful of stories. And he tells them in great detail, right? And he has a lot of speeches by Jesus as well. In fact, right after this, we have a long speech by Jesus about his authority, And who he is related to this whole Sabbath controversy. So of all the stories, in fact, you know, at the end of John's gospel, he basically says, you know, there's so much to tell. All the books in the whole world couldn't hold it. Basically kind of saying, well, you know, I did the best I could. (laughs) Nobody could tell all these stories. So in such a limited space, telling so few stories, why does John tell this one? This weird one. Why does he tell, like, a, one about somebody having faith in Jesus, for instance? What is he trying to tell us? What does he want to tell the church? Let's ponder for a minute how this story relates to the rest of John's story, John's gospel, and maybe to us. Jesus asks if this man wants to be made well. That makes us think of healing. And in in almost everywhere in the Gospels, healing seems to be a symbol for salvation, a picture of salvation. And yet John uses a different word for healing in this story than the usual word for healing in the Gospels. Do you want to get well? In John's prologue, we're clearly, told, we're clearly told right off the bat that this is going to be a story about this mysterious figure who is the Word of God. The Word who eternally existed with God and as God. The Word who was life. The life of the world. The word who created the world. In him was life, John says. So the irony of the story is the man is made well, yet he doesn't get life in John's sense. Because he doesn't come to faith in Jesus. He never, we're never told he becomes a disciple. We're never told he has any faith. In fact, after this episode here, after verse 15, he just vanishes from the gospel. We never hear of him again. In fact, we might say that he's never really healed in in the ultimate sense. He receives grace from God. He doesn't even ask for it. He gets a miracle. He doesn't ask for it. But the miracle doesn't result in faith. He never becomes a disciple. He doesn't know the Son. And so John is clearly telling us something, right? That that just meeting Jesus isn't enough. Even getting grace from God isn't enough. 
Even getting a miracle from God is enough. Lots of people got miracles from Jesus, we're told in the Gospels, and didn't get it. For them, all they saw was a a walking cosmic ATM. Let's have some more, please. They didn't get life. They didn't understand. And John is not just saying this because it's a thing about history. He's saying this because this is an ongoing truth about the way we relate to God. John is telling us that there is a class of people, we might say kind of in between disciples and opponents, right? This man isn't exactly a disciple, but he doesn't start out as an opponent either. He's perfectly happy to take stuff from Jesus, perfectly happy to get the miracle, perfectly happy to get better. Is there a class of people who are happy to accept Jesus' blessings, but when allegiance to him is inconvenient, when it threatens social status, income, or other things, are they ready to turn on him at a moment's notice? Recall Mark's gospel and the parable of the sower, right? The seed that's sown among thorns is a seed that sprouts up, but what? When troubles come, it withers and dies. Are there people who are perfectly willing to celebrate and be happy if they find miracles, joy, success, money, love, from God, but who don't understand what God's calling is. Is that what John wants us to hear in this story? When Jesus says to him, get up, we are clearly meant to hear of a teacher but the voice of the creator. The command foreshadows Jesus' claim later on in the same chapter in his defense speech to have the same power as God the Father to raise the dead. In fact, it's the same verb in Greek. Get up, raise up, rise up, resurrect. That's what resurrect means, to rise up. Later, Jesus will say, the Father raises the dead and gives them life, and so does the Son. And in fact, as soon as Lazarus hears Jesus' voice in chapter 11, as soon as he hears his voice, what does he do? He rises. So ironically, the man is healed in chapter 5, but never has faith in Jesus as God's Son. So we can assume he doesn't have life. What an irony. Here's a man who goes to the temple. He goes from pool as crippled to temple. Yet he has no faith. He encounters Jesus, but he has no knowledge of him. We're told when he's quizzed by the Jewish leaders, he doesn't know Jesus. And here's another theme of John. And not only of John, but of many of the Old Testament prophets. 
In his prologue, John says the world didn't know the Logos. Even though the Logos, the Word of God, created it. Neither do the Jewish leaders know Jesus because they ask, who is he? There's a deliberate irony there, isn't there? They don't know him. They don't understand him. John 14, Jesus said, if you really know me, you will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. How could they have seen God the Father? John says, Christ was God's glory in the flesh. This theme of knowing, of course, doesn't just mean we know his name, we know stuff about him, I know the Athanasian Creed or stuff like that. It means knowing like I know my best friend, like I know my father, like I know my brother. It means knowing, being in a positive relationship. That's why Hosea, the prophet Hosea, says Israel does not know God. But when Hosea says that, (coughs) excuse me, Sorry, let me turn to that passage. When Hosea says that Israel does not know God, the NIV says acknowledge, which is a, it's a good translation, but Hebrew says literally know, literally doesn't know God. Hosea doesn't mean, you know, they forgot, forgot God's name, Yahweh. Could you remind me what we call God again or something, you know, they... Doesn't mean they, you know, they forgot God's commandments. He means they're not God's friends anymore. Because he says, here's why they don't know God. There's no faithfulness, no love. Only cursing, lying, murder, stealing, and adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. That's the evidence that they don't know God. Well, once again, we can see the Old Testament is irrelevant for our world, can't we? That was sarcasm, folks, in case you didn't didn't get that. Uh, And so, when John's Gospel talks about knowing the Father, knowing the Son, it's the same kind of knowing, right? It's not just knowing facts. It's about being his friend. And so even encountering Jesus in this fantastic healing moment sadly does not lead this man to know him. And so this question at the beginning stands for us, not just for the man, but for us as readers. Do we want to be healed? Do we really want to be healed? Not just get stuff from God. Not just take advantage of him. Do we really want what he wants for us? I want to just take a couple quick minutes before I finish to do an exercise here. because The point of worship is not to listen to me, but to listen to God. To try to hear what our Lord is saying through the gospel. So what I want to do is just take a minute or two and imagine ourselves in this story. 
close your eyes and think just for a minute of yourself. Go ahead, close your eyes. It's okay. Your purse is safe. Imagine you are this person by the side of the pool. Imagine it's you that Jesus makes his way to and says, do you want to get well? What is it that God can do for you? What is it that Christ can put his finger on and say, stand up, daughter. Stand up, son. Have I been like the cripple willing to take from you, Lord? And then as soon as things get tough, as soon as my faith might cost me something, bow out and take a pass. Maybe even justifying my behavior by saying, oh, I'm covered by grace. Have I been so blind as to think that your blessed healing for me is a burden? Have I been afraid to accept the whole salvation that you desire for me? Mind and body, emotions, social life, everything. Help me, Lord. Help me to see that your will is good, that your path leads to life. And help me to will what you will.